Our passage today is from 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 15. And uh, John, the Apostle John, has been presenting themes for us. They're contrasting themes, the themes of light and dark and truth and lies, righteousness and unrighteousness, love and hate, and all of these things we can see that Uh, that John has been calling Christians to be distinct from the world, as distinct is as love is from hate, as distinct is as light is from darkness. In our passage today, we get a clear warning of how Christians are to remain distinct from the world, right? As distinct as God's people from the world. Before we read God's word, let's pray. Lord, in your goodness, you have revealed to us the way of salvation. And in your word, you reveal to us the dangers of sin and this world. Thank you, Lord, for making our path clear. Lord, continue to guide us by the power of your spirit as we learn from the Apostle John how we might walk in your ways and abide forever with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 John chapter 2, starting with verse 15. It is written, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's fun in the week of Valentine's Day to be reflecting on love so much. Uh, it's really been a blessing to be able to do so. And, and as we look at what love is, uh, we could be very confused by what we hear from the world. And so uh, it's often good to start in the beginning. So let's go back to the very beginning to get a good picture of love. In the beginning, God created Adam. We can't get much more beginning than that, right? God takes Adam, he forms him from the dust of the earth, and he blows into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, the very breath of God. This is this picture of reliance and love. This is the foundational relationship between God the creator and Adam the created. It's a relationship of reliance And it's a relationship of love. Adam was completely dependent on God, right? If God had just formed Adam out of the dust, he'd still be dust. If he didn't blow life into Adam, there'd be no life at all. It's right and proper for us to yearn and desire and to seek out. It's part of our design 
but it's part of our design to yearn and desire and seek out God, the creator, the giver of all good things, the giver of life, right? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Here in the beginning, we see a good picture of a loving relationship between God and man. When we look at what happens in the garden, we see two different ways, right? We have one way, the way of God, doing the will of God, and we have the other way, uh, not doing the will of God or doing that which is not the will of God. Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he turns away from God. It's at that point that his relationship with God is severed in a way. And that love of God, that relationship that he knew, is no longer the same. He turns away from God, and that leads to death. That's why John gives us a clear warning today. John's been calling Christians to be distinct in their actions. Don't walk in darkness. Walk in the light. Don't lie and say we don't have any sin, but confess our sin to God. We're to be distinct, and we're to be distinct by who it is that we love. What or who we love defines how we act. What we love defines who we act. And so the very clear warning from John today is do not love the world or the things of the world because if you love them, you're going to pass away just like the things of the world are passing away. John calls us to be clearly distinguished. And he does so with a warning. He goes through the temptations of this world and the remedy from God. Those are the three sections that we'll look at today in our sermon. The warning of John, the temptation of the world, and the remedy of God. Well, first we have the warning of John, right? John says it very clearly. Do not love the world or the things in the world. He starts off with this warning, but why is it so important to start off with this warning? If we go back to the beginning of chapter two, uh, John says that he's writing these things so that you may not sin. John's writing so that we may not sin, So if we keep that in mind and we go back to this warning, we can see that loving the world is sin. And Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's why it's so important for us to understand John's warning today, because the wages of sin is death. And John is warning us away from sin. The warning is very clear. But the word love can be a bit tricky to define, can it? Especially these days, the word love can be tricky to define. If we would look to our culture, the word love might be defined as an intense feeling or an intense desire towards a, a person or an object, right? Love is a feeling. What if we take that and apply it to John's warning? Do not have an intense feeling of the world or the things in the world. That sounds very pious, but it doesn't really fit what John's saying here. This would create a very 
sort of gray and dull world. There'd be no rejoicing. There'd be no thanksgiving. There'd be no intense sorrow, right? Don't have any intense feelings. The psalmists are sure filled with intense feelings, aren't they, as we read the psalms? Intense joy, intense sorrow, intense love for God. So our cultural definition doesn't really work, but what if we go to the dictionary? Webster's Dictionary says that love means to have a high regard for something because of its value or worth. It's a sincere appreciation for the great value or worth of the object of our love. So let's go back to our warning here. Do not have a high regard for something because of its value or a sincere appreciation for an object because of its great worth. I mean, we're kind of getting close, but it still doesn't really make sense, right? If we can't value something for its worth, how are we to give thanks to God, right? If we don't value the food that God gives us, how do we give thanks to God for this food? So these are all helpful in kind of understanding aspects of love, Love does produce intense feelings, and uh, love is to have a high regard or appreciation for something, but what is John really talking about here? Scripture tells us that there are two broad categories of love. Jonathan talked about these two broad categories last week. He called them vertical love and horizontal love. And if you remember, horizontal love was the love that we have for one another, Right? This is the love of the brethren that John calls us to in the verses prior to our passage today. The horizontal love of our brethren. And this is summed up well in the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's one category of love, a very broad category of love. Scripture then gives us another broad category, this vertical love. Right? This is summed up in the first great commandment. Love the, God, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. What we can see about this kind of love is that this is an all-encompassing, indivisible kind of love, right? All of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of it. And so we start to see that there are two distinct kinds of love. We have the love of our neighbors, which can be divided up between many neighbors. But we have the love of God, this vertical love of God that is indivisible. There's only one God. And so this, God, this love of God doesn't need to be divided up between many things. But it's a love that is meant for God alone, a singular love meant for God alone. That's the two broad categories, vertical and horizontal. And what John is talking about is this vertical love of God, this all-encompassing, indivisible love of God. Do not love the world with this kind of love that should be reserved for God alone. This is an ultimate kind of love. God is ultimately worthy, and so he is the only one that's worthy of this ultimate love. So John then gives us a test. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John's testing all the time in 1 John. He's always testing. If this, then that. If this, then that. And he's all 
what he's trying to do is to, to build up the assurance of believers. He's trying to make sure that those who have faith in Christ experience the joy of salvation in Christ. But he's also very careful to make sure that anyone who is not a follower of Christ does not have assurance. John wants to make sure that on the day of judgment, when Jesus Christ comes back, we don't go up to Jesus and Jesus says, go away, I don't know you. That's terrifying. That would be awful. And John is warning against this right here. If you love the world, the love of God the Father is not in you. Be careful. That's what he's saying. He's saying, be careful. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we should, we should test our love, right? Do we have love of the world? for the things of the world, this, with this singular love that's for God alone? Well, as we test our love, we can take stock of the actions of our lives. If loving is holding something the greatest esteem, right, loving could also be demonstrating through our actions what is our greatest object of affection. Our actions point us to what it is we love. So we can take stock of our actions throughout the day. Do we spend time in the Word of God? Do we spend time studying the Word of God? Are we seeking out what God is telling us? Do we spend time in prayer to God daily, even by the minute continually lifting up our hearts to God? Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, are we trusting in God, and is God our ultimate worth? We can see that through our actions, right? Weekly, do we show up on worship? Do we show up for worship on Sundays to worship God as Jesus has called us to worship God? Do we spend time in fellowship with the congregation of God's people? Showing up, not showing up to Wednesday night is not a sin, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just throwing it out there. This is for you to consider for yourself. Do your actions fall in line with somebody who holds God as their ultimate worth? That's what John wants us to, to, to look at and to question here because he doesn't want us to have false assurance. Now, what if we're going through all of this and you start taking stock and you're, you know, you got out your journal because you listened to what I said and you're taking it seriously and you're going through it and you start to realize, like, I, maybe I'm not. Maybe, maybe I do more uh, in the world than I do in the church. Maybe I'm not as distinct from the world as, as Scripture's calling me to be. Well, what should we do? Well, what has John been telling us to do? to confess our sin to God, to repent of our sin. If anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, right? Even if we have been living our whole lives loving the world over God, as soon as we confess our sins and we repent and we begin to walk in the light as God is in the light, we're good. We are forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. That's good news. But don't have false assurance. John's very clear. 
don't love the world in the way that you should be loving God. God is ultimately worthy and worthy of our ultimate love. So that's the warning. Now let's look at the temptations of the world. The, the temptations of the world are these things in creation that, 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 help, that make us twist this vertical love that's meant for God alone, and, and we bend it down into creation, and we begin to apply that love of God to all sorts of things, to good food and good times, to careers, to family, to relationships, when we begin to bend that love of God to anything in this creation, we begin to have a problem. And so John says, all that's in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. So let's look at what he defines this as. He's defining these temptations in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, when we hear uh, flesh, a lot of times we think sin, right? And that's good. Paul's always connecting flesh and sin. He's comparing the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. In Romans 7, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, right? Paul's always reminding us, and that's good, but that's not exactly what John is saying here. John doesn't use this word in the same way that Paul does all the time. Let's remember that in his gospel, John says, Jesus Christ is the word of God that became flesh. The word of God that became flesh. So we can start to understand in John, flesh isn't something that's innately sinful. It's not sinful in itself. So the desires of the flesh, they have to do with the created being. Right? It, they just have to do with flesh and bone. It's appetites of hunger. It's thirst. It's an appetite for even relationships. It's the things that human beings need to survive. If we look at a baby, a baby wants, has a desire for nourishment. The baby's nourished and grows and becomes an adult and then has a desire to have a husband or wife and to create more babies. And for generation to generation, the human race continues on, all because of these desires of the flesh. These desires are simply things that spur us to action and things that we need to survive, okay? That's the desires of the flesh. Calvin would call them the vanity that we do. You know, it's vanity because they're passing away, but it's simply the things that we do as humans. The desires of the eyes, then, Calvin says, are the vanity that we go after. These are things like beauty. But beauty's not bad. We have a beautiful sanctuary. Nobody would say this is a bad sanctuary. It's a beautiful sanctuary, right? People are beautiful. We wouldn't say that beautiful people are necessarily bad. But it's a temptation, right? David, King David knows well the dangers of the desire of the eye. As Bathsheba lured him in, just the beauty of Bathsheba lured him in to sin, to murder her husband, into an adulterous relationship. And all this led to the, to the sin against God, to the death of their firstborn child. 
a terrible tragedy because the desires of the eyes were misordered. Augustine says that the desires of the eyes are curiosity, right? So we could see the desires of the eyes are things like beauty and also knowledge. What do we know? What could we know more? What could we find out? What could we discover? What's always around the next corner? That's the desires of the eyes. We can go back to Eve to see how dangerous the the desires of the eyes can be in knowledge. What was the tree called that she ate of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was Eve's desire to know as God knows. That was the temptation that turned her away from God. That's the desires of the eyes. We can see the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh. They're not bad in themselves, but how they're used causes sin. The desires of the flesh, they drive us to eat food when we're hungry, right? They drive us to drink when we're thirsty. The desires of the eyes, they allow us to see the beauty, to discover the goodness of creation that God has laid out before us. But when we're tempted by these things, when we start to see these things as the greatest good, that's when we start to have a problem. Again, Augustine says it's like uh, a husband who loves his wedding ring more than his wife. That's a problem. So if a husband loves his ring more than his wife, all of a sudden he's going to have these desires that are driving him to actions that are wrong. Nobody's going to feed a ring. Nobody's going to comfort a ring when it's sad. They're ridiculous things to consider because they're misordered. So who we love, now we start to see, influences what our desires drive us to do. Our desires are simply engines that drive us. Well, if you put an engine that drives someone to action in a sinner, what is it going to drive us to do? But sin. So it's not the desires in themselves that are sinful, but the actions of the sinner that make them sinful, that drive us farther and farther away from God, These are the temptations that twist that vertical love down to the horizontal plane where it doesn't belong. Finally, he says the pride of life. Well, let's look at pride real quick. Pride is excessive, unwarranted self-esteem. It's arrogance. It's often lifting one up to the expense of another. Right? That's pride, this arrogance. Life here in the Greek, if you saw it, even in the Greek, it would look like B-I-O, bio, right? Well, what is bio? A biography is the story of someone's life. It's the writing of someone's life. Biology is the study of creatures and living things, right? It's the study of life. So the the pride of the creature is the pride of creaturely things. It's the arrogance to think that the things of this creation are sufficient for things of eternity. That's the disconnect. 
That's the big problem. That's this arrogance that we could look around at all of the blessings that God gives us, that we would look at our career, that we would look at our bank accounts, that we would look at our families, and we would say, surely everything is good. And maybe if I could just have one more kid, or if I could just have a little bit more money, or if I could just do the next thing, I would be okay. That's trusting in creaturely things and created things. And at that point, we've switched the worship of the creator to the worship of the created. And that's sin. That's a big problem. This pride of life is false assurance. We have no right to have any assurance for eternity because we have a big bank account or because we have a lot of friends, or because we do lots of good things. It's arrogant to think so. And as we look to the things of this creation, now we put God down. We dishonor God as we exalt ourselves. That's the pride of life. But this physical world is what we see all the time. That's why it's a temptation. That's why it's a temptation to turn and twist that vertical love to the love of the creation. Disordered love drives disordered desires. That's the temptation of the world. In verses 15 and 16, we see that love and desire are connected Right? Who or what we love informs the desires and where they drive us, and that's where we're going to follow. In verse 17, John says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you love the world, you're going to be passing away with the world. If you love God and you do the will of God, you will abide forever. It's very simple what John puts out. But the big problem is that we hitch our wagon to the things of this world. The things of this world are passing away. They're passing away into destruction, not into eternity, but into judgment. And the problem is, is we've hitched our wagon to this train of horses that's heading off to the side of a cliff. And we can't stop. We can't disconnect. We can't change because that love is bent and twisted and perverted. Love is like a conduit of commitment. So what we love is going to be what we're committed to. Calvin said that the way God rules in our hearts is by engaging all of our thoughts and affections. The way... God rules in our hearts is by engaging all of our thoughts and affections. That's our desires. Well, guess what? The way the world rules in our hearts is by engaging all of our thoughts and affections and leading us away from God. Most of us have heard the term, follow your heart. You know, follow your heart. And most of the time, we're being warned against, follow your heart. We should be warning against following your heart. But here's the thing. 
It's so dangerous because it's true. We will follow our heart. The mechanics behind the saying are absolutely true. Wherever our love is, right, our heart is the seat of love, the seat of desire. And whoever it is we love, that's who we're going to follow. Those desires become a sail that propel us forward, either into eternity with God or eternity without God. We will follow our heart. And we can't take the plug back. We can't unhitch from that wagon that's heading off the side of the cliff. We'll never pull that love back up to God and straighten it back out. But that's why God sent Jesus Christ. When God sent Jesus because he so loved the world that he sent his son to die on the cross while we were yet sinners, while we were yet charging ahead to our own destruction, God sent Jesus Christ, the love of God, down into creation so that that horizontal love could be reconnected to God, so that through Jesus Christ, through love of him, through faith in him, through the adoration of our Lord and Savior Jesus, our love to God the Father might be restored. You see, because Jesus came and lived that perfect, righteous life, and Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and when Jesus was resurrected on the third day to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he brought our love back up to God and restored that relationship, restored that ultimate love to our ultimate God, and by him we are saved. And that is salvation, the restoration of the love of God for God, away from the things of this world. And in that we can have assurance. It's so important that we understand what love is and what love means and what John's warning is for us today. The world has hijacked the word love. The world wants to tell us that love is love and have no distinctions. It's just an intense desire. But when we follow the world, our desires drive us farther away from God. When we follow the world, we follow the world into destruction and judgment. And the love of God is not in us. But when we follow Jesus, by the power of his word, the guidance of his spirit, we are restored. We will do the will of God and we will abide with him forever. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, even in our sin, you came to save us. And even as we turned away, you turned to us to restore our souls, that we might love you, that we might walk in your ways by the power of your Spirit. All glory and honor be to you, Father. You are ever faithful, steadfast in love, and always good. May all creation glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let us now stand and confirm and affirm what it is we believe, the truths in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, in whom do you believe? I believe. 